innovative Often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk You painted skunks You played enough I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. One of my favorite guests was David Porter, who uh, came on when he was a brown belt. Since then, he's earned his black belt under Pedro Sauer and has come down to the triangle to record a DVD. Now, many of you know that Dave is known for the Darce choke or the Bravo choke. If you go to our Facebook page and check out the videos, you can see an instructional that we made with some of Dave Porter's favorite Darce setups. Well, if you liked that, you're really going to like what he comes out with on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. So instead of going shopping and acting the fool at Walmart or whatever, you can sit at home, download this DVD off the internet and learn you some jujitsu. In order to explain a little bit more about what's going on, I talked to Dave for about 45 minutes. So we got into it not just about jujitsu, not just about his teaching, his training, his journey in jujitsu and the Pedro, Sa- Pedro Sauer Association, but he also told a pretty amazing story about his time in Australia, a story that involves a snow leopard, a koala bear, and a fanny pack of all things. So stay tuned for our interview with David the Mongoose Porter. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. So we're back in the studio with my good friend David Porter. He's in North Carolina recording a new DVD project, which we're going to talk to him a lot about. There have been some changes since he was on the show last. A lot of things I'm excited to update you, the listener, on. It's always a pleasure to welcome David Porter to the studio. Thanks, Jeff. I'm just happy to be in the area, and especially anytime I can come through here, you know I'm going to hit you up. It's just so much fun. Yeah, it's always great to talk to you. You Dave has some great perspectives about jiu-jitsu history, about world travel, about the martial arts generally, and about specific jiu-jitsu techniques, including one that he's known very, very much for. Um, It's a particular type of arm in choke, and we have a working title for an instructional that you are completing uh, even today. Totally. So I came down here specifically to go to Elevate MMA, Cody Malte's place, and we're Just about wrapping up, right after this uh, little interview, I'm going to do the bonus features. Cody's got some cool things to add. And just in case anybody was wondering, you know, that uh, DRC choke, that thing, um, uh, you know, I'm an old school kind of guy. I love my jujitsu history and I know where it came from. And the Bravo is very near and dear to me. And, you know, if you talk to Andrew Smith or you talk to a lot of other guys, they won't even call it a Darce. They'll say, oh, yeah, it's the Bravo. It's a Bravo. So the working title is Bringing Back the Bravo. It's an arm in aficionado's guide to choking someone with their arm. And we do love the old school here. And so, you know, I've seen some of the curriculum that you put together. That, you know, you mentioned that you're, you're, uh, you're at Cody's school, Elevate MMA, re- filming this with Gene Kim and a- using Andrew Foster from, uh, from Evolution as, as your UK. So we're excited to see some of that content. And you have literally dozens of setups uh, for the Bravo Choke. You have, you know, it's both gi and no gi content. Many of the techniques apply to both. I think only a very few are gi specific. Is that right? Correct. So the original Bravo Choke, was a game move, right? And then it was like, hey, uh, 
we can try this Nogi variant. And instead of grabbing the lapel and, or the collar and trying to use this kind of pressure, we'll grab our own bicep and we'll do it this way. What do we call this? Well, instead of saying Nogi Bravo, it's like there's a lot of history around how it got his name through, you know, John Danaher teaching it to Joe D'Arcy, Joe D'Arcy going to the West Coast, Mark Lehman, you know, putting his flair on it. And then next thing you know, you have the Dars, the Mars. And, oh, now if you grab your, your sleeve, it's the Slars. And it just got crazy. You know, it's, it's a Bravo. It's, it's an arm and choke. It's an inverted triangle with your arms. It's not that complicated. Um, I have... Through trial and error, through seminars, through going around and finding different setups, came up with um, 65 individual entries. Now, I couldn't fit all of them on, but imagine you had like three, three kids. Pick your favorite one. You can't, right? So for me, it was very, very difficult to find some of the more individual, um, or let me rephrase that, some of the more uh, stylized ones that would hit well and resonate with the audience, but also be the most practical and trying to find that balance where I'm not also stepping on the toes of those who've come before me, specifically um, Jeff Glover. Jeff Glover did the Darcipedia, which is the standalone volume at this point in time on that specific choke. So I'm not going to do anything that he specifically worked on on that. But if there was something relatively similar, like how I hit that move off of when someone takes my back, slightly different than how he does it. Um, I don't use the same nomenclature clearly, but then there are some specific ways that I do it differently. You know, CJ Murdoch, one of my good friends, he's known for um, being an active competitor in this area. And he loves that I finish these matches with the move, but he, he just gets so boggled by the fact that I quote unquote, do it wrong, right? <laughs> I have my way of doing it and it works. I'm trying to share that with the audience. And I think there'll be a lot more people, regardless of arm length, that are gonna have some success with this move now. So I'm excited. Speaking as uh, someone who is cursed with stubby arms, I am really excited uh, to, 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 to start Darson people. And if you want a brief preview of some of the content, we put together a video on our Facebook page, Cage Side Radio, which is about a two-minute video that shows Dave hitting a lot of these moves in competition and live rolling with active competitors. And so you can be assured that the techniques work. So how is the, you know, so we talked a little bit about how the DVD is organized um, and it's going to come out fairly soon. How are folks going to be able to get it? We're going to have Physical copies out by Black Friday. We're going to be posting those through the Lanky Fight Gear website, my sponsor. We're also going to have some digital downloads that are available through anybody within the Pedro Sauer network that have Pedro Sauer TSD, TotalSelfDefense.com. And there will just be a tab on the side where we have Jeff Curran, Rylan Lazarus, all these great instructors with their tutorials. It'll just be like a, a Dave Porter little bullet, which still blows my mind that I'm even close to being in the pantheon of greats like those guys. But that'll be available for digital download there. I need to talk to um, Riley Bodycomb because he is an amazing, amazing athlete, sambist. Um, I think he just won the U.S. Nationals for Sambo this year. He's going to the Worlds. He's going to do incredible stuff. Um, I'm representing our dojo. That, which is a new thing that I haven't really did a lot of hyping for on the social media yet. But the way I do these dynamic entries and stuff, we have a lot of philosophical similarities. So he contacted me about a month ago to say, hey, would you like to support our dojo, which is Riley's dojo, like this, this plan of his? I said, hell yeah, why wouldn't I? 
And so we're going to try to, you know, make digital downloads accessible there too, if I can. Otherwise, uh, physical copies by Black Friday, you'll have it in time for the, the holidays. And of course, we'll be able to link to all those digital downloads. So if you keep following the Facebook page or our Twitter and Instagram, you'll be able to figure out how to get this when it comes out. We'll probably return to talking about Dar's technique in a bit, but you mentioned, you know, Pedro Sauer, TotalSelfDefense.com. A major achievement that's happened since you were on the show last, which was last January, I think, um, you have earned your black belt under Pedro Sauer, yeah. which is a monumental achievement under a legend of the martial arts. And so congratulations for that. Thank um, you. Yeah. And, and I really want to talk to you both about the transition to black belt and specifically about the test, which focused on the traditional self-defense techniques, which uh, Pedro Sauer, you know, obviously old school guy focuses on, but also rolling. And so maybe we can talk about the mechanics of the test, how the test happened and, and what your experience was with it. For sure. I'll start by saying this. I love curriculum. I think that it's a great way to standardize things rather than have this crazy amount of, okay, well, this guy's really good because he got on the podium here, or man, this person really kills every other blue belt in the academy. Let's just make them a purple belt. You have to have this technical proficiency and understanding of the mechanics, and there's also this time and grade aspect. What we have is um, a card system where white belts have 100 classes they need to hit to make the bare minimum of requirements for time in. Once you have your 100 hours on the mat, and you display active um, understanding of the curriculum from white to blue, which is 88 moves, you're eligible to test. And then it's interesting because it, we have uh, the black bar on the white belt and every 10 classes for the first 10, you get a stripe. Then after that 50th class, we actually put a blue bar on the opposite side. And then every 10 classes after that is another set of stripes. And then eventually you end up with all these crazy stripes on your white belt, right? But that's how it's 100 classes. Once you hit the colored belt ranks, it's 100 class hours per stripe. And it's very regimented, you know, 500 class hours per belt, blue, uh, white, uh, white, blue to purple, purple to brown, brown to black. Roughly speaking, day one you walk in, you put in 1,600 hours, you're going to have the minimum for what you need for your black belt. And then as long as you can display the understanding of the Gracie master text per what Master Pedro Sauer wanted uh, to do for uh, respecting Grandmaster Elio Gracie's wishes of having all of his upper belts know the self-defense. Once you, once you can display that and you have those hours, you have the minimum requirements to test. What I think is funny is how off the deep end I went, like, uh, in 2014, in that one year, I did 1,200 hours on the mat. And then last year, I did 1,500 hours on the mat. And it's just getting more and more ridiculous because it's traveling all the time. It's teaching private lessons, going to do seminars. I'm teaching a day class, Monday, Tuesday, Thursdays, uh, Saturday mornings, coming to every evening class available. And even when there's no classes, I'm there prior to that drilling. Uh, I actually just saw you drilling, you know, <laughs> solo drills at, at Triangle. And that's awesome because I'll do that. If nobody shows up, I will beat up that grappling dummy like it's nobody's business, like he owes me money. And then that's just the fun of it. But I put in all these hours. Um, nobody questioned that minimum requirement. But when it was the time for me to test, uh, we had to do 55 standing self-defense moves with no weapons, right, front and back all the different grips and holds, headlock defense, guillotine defense, bear hugs, everything. 
And then we did the 22 weapons moves that are in the master text. What I thought was interesting was I had it down so well that as the association head, Mike Horhan, is reading the move, I'm doing the move, and then I'm already on autopilot for the next move, and it's just go, 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 go. And it was, it was so expertly handled in terms of how he's delivering the, the curriculum to me, but I'm just on autopilot. And it wasn't any like offense to him, but I was just on go. So by the time I even stopped to breathe, 13 minutes goes by and I'm done. And then it's like, okay, my friends, let's, let's get some training. So uh, Master Sauer pulls out all the stops. He had Dennis Barangan, uh, who is a second degree black belt under him. Mike Horahan, who was reading the text, who's a first degree black belt under him. Um, a few other black belts in attendance. And he just made me run through a gauntlet of black belt, black belt. And then I ended up rolling with Master Sauer himself, which by the way, spoiler alert, I did really well for the most part. And then that happened. And it's like, I don't know jujitsu. I, I think my claim to fame for that, like uh, 50 seconds of time was, yeah, I, uh, I didn't get armbarred by him twice. You know, I, I slipped two arm bars. Oh my God. I think I can, you know, make a Facebook, uh, life event out of that. But you know, he, he beats me with a, a Kimura that would even make, you know, some of the top, top competitors jealous. And this is a 58 year old man. This is a guy who is no spring chicken. He's had neck surgeries, shoulder surgeries, a countless, countless things to slow down the normal human being. Some of which would be debilitating enough to make you stop doing jujitsu. But his jiu-jitsu is so flawless and so smooth that those things are almost like necessary handicaps so the rest of us mere mortals can feel like we can do jiu-jitsu. And I would like to say I'm in the prime of my life at 33 years old and doing so well and competing all the time and I'm super active and he tooled me up and it was great. And I'm smiling the whole time he's putting my hand behind my head. And it's like, oh my God, this is what I came for. That's well, so inspiring, man. Like to have like, you know, someone 58 years old who's had all these, you know, f- the physical consequences of a, a life in jujitsu and just be, be able to be so, and, and you know, if you've seen video, you know, obviously you've experienced it person, but in person, but if you've seen, even seen video of Master Sauer rolling, you know, it's, it, he makes it look effortless. He makes it look fun, no matter how tough the guy he's competing against, you know? I think the Lance Bachelor Mr. Utah fight is probably the most famous Pedro Sauer video of all time. But... You know, as I'm slipping like the first arm bar, I'm thinking, ha, I'm one step better than Lance Bachelor." <laughs> but that's really like, that's not a big claim to fame in the grand scheme of things, right? Because he was not a trained jiu-jitsu guy. So for me, it's like, okay, I'm expected to do this. I'm, I have to do a little bit better than that. So as I'm like, you know, managing the, the minefield that is his game of jiu-jitsu, I'm slowly getting a little bit more comfortable, but that's the trick. He wants you to feel like you're doing the right thing. But he never shows all his cards. So that's beautiful. Um, I'll, I'll quickly change topics for a second. John Danaher made a post about six months ago that I have resonated with so well. He talked about the three types of body control. In the first phase of body control, we control ourselves. Just getting up and walking, jumping, running, gymnastics, swimming. All of those are us controlling ourselves. In the second phase, he talked about concerted effort. Two or more people working together for a common goal. So think about like even just two lumberjacks with like one big saw, like pulling and pushing or a team of people on uh, like doing crew where they're rowing all in unison and no one's resisting the person in front of them or behind them. Tug of war, things like that. 
concerted effort. It looks like everyone's working together. And then the third phase is when you are trying to resist me and I'm trying to resist you and we're trying to impose will our will on each other. Beautiful jujitsu is phase three that's disguised to look like phase two. And he does that so well. Like Master Sour can make you feel like you're doing everything right. And realistically, it's like when you're in quicksand, you're supposed to be still. And the more you move, the faster you sink. He does that to everybody. It's incredible. And it sounds like, to, to return to the self-defense aspect, it sounds like uh, in the association, you folks emphasize the self-defense from white belt. And so that by the time you're ready to test for a black belt, you have a knowledge of these techniques in such a way that you're able to demonstrate proficiency of them without necessarily even thinking about it, just autonomically. Is that, is that fair to say that that, that level of self-defense emphasis exists in the association? Correct. One of the things that came out uh, December of the f- previous year was when we had Henry and Huron come to the headquarters academy and we talked about the merging of ideas. It wasn't a uh, business merger by any sense of of the imagination. Like it was more a philosophical agreement that combatives and and the idea that self-defense is first, those things had to happen because we don't want to lose our jujitsu identity. When you think about like Hoist Gracie in the first UFC, the smallest guy on the card won every match and he didn't win it on a judge's scorecard. They didn't have that. You know, you talk about finishers. He finished every fight. He put that period and in some points exclamation mark at the end of every fight. And that was what jujitsu was about in the early 90s. And I think with, you know, the explosive popularity that jujitsu has gotten within the last decade, especially, we're starting to, you know, be ridiculed by some other aspects of you know mma guys are like well why would i do that butt scooting stuff or why would i put on those crazy pajamas and then just grip somebody and do bad dancing where we're kind of like circling each other for a while and i always think it's funny when i get ridiculed ridiculed by a guy in a tap out shirt but you know that's just me anyway uh we we need to get that identity back where it's like hey if you try to punch me i'm going to take your arm if you try to do this i'm going to do that and the self-defense has to come first So it legitimized why it is we need to have certain curriculum in place and do these things the way that we, Pedro Sauer Association, have been doing it for as long as Master Sauer has been in America and prior to that. And so during your test, so you you demonstrate the proficiency of all these self-defense techniques, which again, you know, relates to the old school, relates to jujitsu as a self-defense art, as a fighting art. And then you get put through a rolling gauntlet. And I'm curious about the mechanics of that where it's, you know, because different associations do it different ways. Are these like rounds where like, okay, you go with my core hand for 10 minutes and then we're going to set you off to another guy? Or is it like a, they switch when they tell you to sort of thing? <laughs> I wish there was a real answer here. Uh, so I go with, I go with Dennis Barangan first and he mounts me and professor's like, okay, escape the mount. You know, that could mean a bunch of different things, like trap and roll with an upa, uh, elbow escape. And for me, it was like pop him to a butterfly guard and switch to a single leg X leg lock. <laughs> and that was my quote unquote mount escape. And Professor starts laughing because it was like it was it was it was pretty, um, pretty dynamic how I jumped into it so fast. And so he's laughing. And he's like, OK, Mike Horahan, put Dave in your guard. And if you know anything about Mike Horahan, don't go to his guard. So. 
I'm in his guard and he's like, okay, Dave, now you have to, you have to pass Mike sweeper submit. So I think we, we barely had time to shake hands and he swept me and it's like, okay, I might have decent base, but Mike's guard is just that damn good. So he sweeps me and then I'm looking at professor. He's like, keep going. And I was like, all right, well, that wasn't the objective, but I guess we'll just change it on the fly. So now I'm fighting through Mike's mount and, you know, minutes are going by and I'm just getting smoked. And eventually somehow we end up back. I, I think I did an UPA and I, I end up rolling the position on him back in his guard. And through the course of it, I did pass and I get to neon belly and I'm like this proud little kid. And I look up at professor with big wide eyes and I'm like, I did it. And he's like, keep going. And I was like, crap. When does it stop? So then eventually he's like, okay, let's switch. And there was no, he, he gave a few objectives, but none of them really stuck. It was, it was kind of like he needed to see certain things. So he was putting me into positions and it was positional sparring, but he wanted to see um, transitions, movement, defenses, offense. And it was kind of go, go, go until you've hit all of these things and you don't know what he's looking for. And then when he rolled with me, that wasn't even the end of it. After you figure like you don't want to be that guy that comes on after that, that last act. Right. But we have this one purple belt, Eric Esch and Eric Eschenbaugh is, uh, he, he says he's 270 if he has a light lunch. But when I say this guy can do full splits and cartwheels, he is the most graceful giant you'll ever see. And he happens to have been trained up to purple belt under Jim Kelly, who is one of Professor Sauer's um, top, top black belts. When I talk about the pantheon of greats in our association, Jim Kelly's in that list. And this guy trained directly under Jim. Jim also happens to have this honor of being one of the Americans to train with Hickson the most. So, you know, Master Hickson being the goat in jujitsu, that's a pretty good dig. So Esh has incredible technique. Also happens to be big. So you know that whole adage like size doesn't matter until it does, right? Esh, Esh can make it matter. And so it's like you go black belt, black belt, coral belt, purple belt. It really doesn't make sense to most people on paper. But when you understand like I needed to suffer and to professor, it's like after he kicks my butt and I'm like, oh man, that was awesome. He's like, no, no, no. We need to make you suffer. Let's get Esh. And it was terrible. And to make matters worse, like I train Luciana Duvall, um, wife of actor Robert Duvall. She's a great client, amazing at jujitsu. She'll be getting her purple belt within the next couple of years, I guarantee it. She wanted to be there for my test. She brought her husband, Robert Duvall's there. And he happened to have James Kahn, his good friend of many, many years in town. So I'm like, okay, so now... Not only am I doing this amazing thing for myself and like it's such a a milestone in my life, but I have to do it in front of these celebrities that I admire. And it's like, oh man, these are basically all the guys from The Godfather that weren't snitches. (laughs) And I've got to do well. And they're looking at me like, oh man, he sucks comparatively to all these other dudes. So, you know, it was a great experience. I love it. it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. One of the clear things hearing you tell jujitsu stories, and not just jujitsu stories wherein you suffer greatly, but all jujitsu stories, is you've never lost the joy of doing jujitsu. And that, that, that comes in clear because you can see how this would be an experience where it's specifically designed for you to suffer, right? I have this 270-pound purple belt who can do the splits. He's on top of me. And, like, and yet this is something that clearly on a certain level you enjoyed and continue to enjoy. I don't deny a certain level of masochism. 
uh, I think you either embrace it or you or you quit. And one of the things I tell people all the time is no matter how much you think you might technically suck today, you only ever suck at jujitsu if you stop. And on top of it, there's there's just so much beauty in understanding where our limitations are and how we can eventually surpass those limitations or increase our limits. So you do have to kind of give kudos to that guy who can make you suffer. You, you'll hear me say on a regular basis that comfort is control. It doesn't matter where my hand placement is. It doesn't matter necessarily where I'm putting my weight until I can tell that my opponent is uncomfortable. Once they're mentally off balanced, then you're in control because then they're going to be on tilt in poker terminology, right? You're going to make them taxed. They're going to start, you know, quote unquote, bleeding chips. Next thing you know, the incremental advantage is just too much and you're winning. And then you make one big play all or nothing and you get them. Going back to poker references, you know, we don't want to show our hand. So there are a lot of times, like I said, where I was rolling with Master Sour and I thought I was in great position, making the moves, and then it's like, boom, fell right into the trap and he got me. We have to appreciate that and learn from it and then also replicate so that we can then be the ones that are trapping somebody else in doing this. One big thing we talk about on a regular basis is trained versus untrained versus trained or against trained versus trained. When we have almost like the quote unquote dumbed down techniques of combatives, you, you can't look at it that way. It's trained versus untrained. You have to imagine this person doesn't understand this type of grip or this type of position and how are they most likely gonna come at you? When I was in the military, we learned uh, MP COA, enemy's most probable course of action. We know how they're gonna come through this specific tree line if there's a path. Because humans by nature are lazy and we're going to do the easy thing and come through the path, most likely. Okay, aim the guns there. It's just a better way of training. You don't train for like that flying loco plata, right? When you get ready for the worlds, because it's not gonna happen. But you might as well start working on your guard passes and your guard retention and like the things that are going to happen. So I, I like that we have those things in place and you do have to enjoy what you do, but put it into context and understand it better. Then you can appreciate it. I think one of those um, aspects of uh, Ender's game that I liked the most was his understanding, his empathy. He got what it was about and then he could strategize better. So yeah, you have to enjoy it. You have to embrace that suck sometimes. Most definitely. What was the best and what was the most difficult part about that experience for you? Uh, okay, so when I, when I tested for my brown belt and I only had to do the weaponless section of the test, I was corrected on one move so badly that it embarrassed the hell out of me. And it was the hand chop. You know, you like run your fingers through your hair. You kind of like, oh, my friend, you know, you, you play it off and then you just whip that hand right in their neck like super hard. And I, at that point in time, you know, I was, I was sick. I was tired. I said that in the last show about the whole Brazil trip. Piranha but, soup. Piranha soup. Oh my God. Yeah. Still have nightmares. But I, when I got to the hand chop, 
to say I was um, not selling it is an understatement. I was so not enthused at that section of the test that I just wanted to get through it and get to like more of the quote unquote in-depth techniques. But Master Sauer was like affronted by that. He got up and was like, no, 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 you really have to sell it, my friend. And, you know, he comes up and when he did it, you can like hear the wind off of his hand. He, he was really into it. So I said, okay, in the future, when I test for my black belt, I'm going to sell the hell out of this move. So <clears throat> the fun thing for me was at first I wanted to make a joke about it because I, I, while I'm being tested, I'm the only person being tested. There's 60 people sitting around just watching this happen. I also want my personality to come out and people know me as kind of a jovial dude. So when he says, okay, hand shop, if you remember the, the scene at the end of the credits for uh, meet the parents where you have Ben Stiller in front of the teddy bear with the camera. And he's like, what you think about that with his hands flying everywhere. So when he said, do the hand shop, I go, okay. And I just start whipping my hand like crazy. And I was like, no, no, no. Now in all seriousness, I'll do it for real. But I needed to break that tension of, I remember how I messed up last time. This is me joking about it now. This is me about to do it seriously. And you know, that was necessary because, you know, Master Sauer starts dying laughing. Everybody's who was sitting there all kind of tense, like, oh, this is a black belt test. This is a black belt test. You know, that's roughly halfway through. And it just brought some needed levity to the situation that ultimately calmed me down too. And it was me accepting, you know, that I screwed up this very, very simple technique back then. So that was great. I think where it digressed was when we got to the rolling part, right? Because then I think I did so well on the actual curriculum. Now everyone's watching me roll. I better not suck. I feel like I'm doing really well. And then it's like I run into the Mike Horahan, you know, guard. And then it's like professors tooling me up and then Esh is tooling me up and he's a purple belt and I'm a brown belt testing for black, but Esh is, you know, a monster who's getting me like fourth in line. And man, it wasn't great, but it was awesome. That makes perfect sense. So on the topic of you being a jovial dude, in addition to your time in jujitsu, you're also a world traveler, <laughs> been to Australia among other spots. And uh, the other night you told me a story about uh, your experience at a zoo in Australia that, uh, that, that sort of multiplied and it just kind of kept coming. And I was wondering <laughs> if you could share that story with the listeners. I would love to. So first off, I go to Australia and my, my trip was supposed to be eight days. I decided this is a once in a lifetime trip. And plus, if you're going to be in the air for 19 to 20 something hours, you might as well make the best of it and not just stay for eight days. So I ended up staying for just over a month. In my travels, while I was alone backpacking through Australia, I spent a majority of time on the Eastern coast. And when I was in Sydney, um, I wanted to go to Steve Irwin's family zoo. I can't remember the name of it, but um, I wanted to go to that zoo, but someone had recommended that since I'm in Sydney, I might as well go to the Taronga Zoo, which you have to take a ferry to get to from the Sydney Harbor, which already gave it this like Jurassic Park style theme as you're like on the boat going towards this island. And then you get off the boat and there are all these queues lining up for this uh, sky car, this tram that goes to the top of the island. And you get on the tram. And then you spiral down until you get back to the docks and then you ferry back to the harbor. So it's a really cool system. It's, it's really neat. It just makes the, the whole park experience very organized. But that's basically where the organization left. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, the the tram. So I'm backpacking alone. I'm I'm on this trip, and I get queued up with all these really lovely Asian people. They have this great Asian demographic in Australia, and especially in the big cities like Sydney. So I'm packed into this sky car, and uh, I'm I'm all all by myself in the back, and I have my camera out, and they all have their cameras out. And I think what was awesome was as we're going up the up the island, we see all these different exhibits and some of them are pretty cool. And then I'm looking out ahead of us where we're heading and I can see all these like telephone pole style, like wooden beams with netting, cargo netting and all these cool ropes hanging off of them. And I can definitely tell it's like some kind of like ape gymnasium. But the thing that really stood out was this huge orange shape that was just looming off on one of the larger poles that was closer to the tram. And I could tell this this is a massive orangutan. Like, I do not want to mess with this thing in the na- in nature. But it's really, really close to the tram. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know if these things can jump. I wonder if it could actually, like, t- reach out and touch us. I was like, nah, probably not. It would probably have to jump. Just as we're crossing, it jumped. And the next thing you know, the whole car is rocking back and forth. My hands are braced up against the sides as my heart is pounding out of my chest and I drop my camera and I'm ready to die. Not because I think this thing is a vicious animal, but I'm just afraid that it's going to knock the tram off the line and we're going to fall and crash. Meanwhile, every other person in this tram pulls out their camera and they are taking pictures and they are so excited. Like, oh, this is awesome. And I was like, I bet you if it were Godzilla. Not going to be too, too crazy with this, but you would run. It's funny. Like maybe as a New Yorker, I'm afraid of apes because of King Kong, but yeah. that's just like a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. I, whatever. So it can't get any worse. The thing jumps back off into its little thing. And I was like, you couldn't pay for this to happen. Like it, it, I, I have no idea how many times this must happen in a given week, but it's like winning the lottery with, with a huge great ape. Okay. Well, that's terrible. At least the rest of my day will be pretty easy comparatively to that. I wish that were the case. I get off the tram with heart rate slightly elevated, grab my camera, and one of the first things I hear over the uh, the PA system throughout the whole park is, dear patrons of the Taronga Zoo, be very aware of your surroundings. We are still attempting to locate our snow leopard. Now, I'm not the most well-versed in the uh, large cats category, but when I hear snow leopard, I think, okay, lots of sharp teeth, big claws. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know like how many kilograms it weighs or what its max speed is. I just need to know it could really mess me up. And after the interaction I just had with the ape that had no reason jumping on my sky car, all I could think is, Okay, this is going to be one of those days. Did they ever find the snow leopard, or was he was he in like the concession stand getting popcorn? Oh man, like- you know this is one of those mysteries in life that I wish I could like go back and like internet the heck out of and find out. But you know this is um, February of two thousand and two, and I never got the the scoop on like Australian Taronga Zoo news. But we d- they didn't find it that day. They definitely didn't. It was just hanging out somewhere and. man scared the hell out of me it's just like constant threat alert orange so you've always so you've already been you've so you've had an ape jump on your tram there's a snow leopard wandering somewhere nobody knows where it is and Uh, and what happened after that 
So as I'm continuing, I, I jump into this one group of people that are going on a tour. And one of the first exhibits at the top of the zoo was the lion exhibit. Now, notice I didn't say like the lion pen or the lion whatever. I said the lion exhibit because I don't know how else to explain it. There wasn't a moat. There wasn't a wall. No plexiglass, no bars. It was the path we are currently standing on and then just grassy hill that went up and then slightly crested. And then there's like this little cave where you see five or six lionesses hanging out. And the guy who's giving us our guide or our our guided tour is talking about, yeah, and as you can see, our lions are very happy where they're at and we don't have any need for, you know, keeping them enclosed they, they love where they're, 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 they're at. We take good care of them and they have no reason to come over here. And just then I look down and there's this little boy who's eating a hot dog or sorry, a, a kebab and it's got ketchup pouring out of the sides and it's all over his face. And all I can think is, man, you're screwed. You're going to be the one. You're going to be the reason they come over here. And, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't fathom how this place exists because you have apes jumping on sky cars you have uh lions that don't have a pen and there's a snow leopard loose well i wonder how that happened so meanwhile i i decide okay i need to get away from this tour i need to kind of do my own exploration but mainly i just need to get away from that kid with the red all over his face because i can see him being the first victim so i start going about my own merry way and as i'm walking through the park I hear like a rustling in these bushes. So rather than let my fear of a snow leopard stop me from being curious, I kind of poke my head in and I see this nice basketball sized gray shape. So there's this nice little koala that's just right there on the path. And because my expertise up to this point on what the Taranga Zoo can teach me is basically there are no exhibits really that are off limits. I start waving. And as I start waving at this, uh, at this koala, I'm like, oh, she doesn't see me. So I start petting this koala. And before long, the koala attaches itself to my arm and then to my chest. And all of this, without me knowing, in its sleep. Koalas can sleepwalk. The eucalyptus they eat basically is one crazy sedative. So they're, uh, I, I think the statistic is they're the laziest animal in the world. They sleep 23 hours out of the day. And they can do all these crazy things in their sleep. Like they'll move around the tree. They'll lean forward and back depending on where the sun is. All while completely like out cold. So I was warmer than the tree she was on. So she collected me up. And I'm walking through the park now for the better part of the next 45 minutes to an hour with this koala on me. Now, to tell you about how fashionable 2002 Dave Porter was, I'm walking around in my cargo shorts with this koala on and my fanny pack. I blend in with every single worker from the Taranga Zoo at this point. So maybe Australia is the place for me. I didn't know, but I guess I just uh, I resonate well with being a zoo worker. And no one thought twice as they watched me walking around the zoo with this koala on my chest because I'm in cargo shorts and I have a fanny pack, so I must work here. I end up getting to the exhibit and when I get to the exhibit, uh, exhibit for the koalas, rather, uh, I go, hey, uh, you want to take this from me? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. Hey, when did you start? And I was like, uh, earlier today. 
not thinking like they they're under the impression like when did you start working here i thought when did you start your tour oh earlier today earlier today oh and they just like grab her okay we're uh, we're good here and they put her on a tree and i continue on my merry way now if you're thinking man you roll up to this place that's kind of like jurassic park on this ferry you get accosted by a big orange great ape on the tram there's a snow leopard on the loose there's lions that are in this pen and there's no like barrier in place you you grab this koala just basically out of a bush and you're parading around with it what could be the worst thing that happens throughout the day now not that i had this like final destination style sense of things but when i was walking through this one reptile exhibit they have six of the 10 most venomous land snakes all in this one pen and one of the zookeepers is walking through this pen barefoot and i'm like okay this is it this is the this is the one this is the situation that's going going to be the most terrible Nothing happened to that guy. The venomous snakes that Australia is known for were so incredibly docile. The heinous situation took place as I was ready to leave the zoo. And I see there's this really nice pen, which funny enough, had an enclosure. And it wasn't for a carnivore. It was for some giraffes and some zebras. And the zebras are like running underneath the giraffes and it's all cute and stuff. But they had this crazy embankment that went up about 16 feet in the air and you at the base of it you grab like a handful of straw and you can walk up it and then at head height you could feed a giraffe and it's such a nifty concept right well it's nifty until you realize that your significant other has long flowing blonde hair that looks about the same color as the straw so you have this hay in your hand right and she's just like all la-di-da. She, she turns to get this great picture from her boyfriend or significant other. And her hair is flowing right next to it. And in comes this giraffe with its, you know, foot-long black tongue and just wraps up her hair. <laughs> and it starts eating her hair. And, you know, to the, to the surprise of her, she's freaking out and she doesn't know what to do. And it's not just like this gentle caress. That tongue wrapped around her hair and it is pulling it in the the man involved grabs his camera by the 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 cord and starts beating this giraffe over the horns with it the giraffe is unfazed like (laughs) your nikon has nothing on me buddy and he's ready to just get his meal meanwhile now that you're beating this giraffe he's starting to back away oh in case you were wondering yes this ledge is 16 feet up you might want to start rethinking your life choices So he goes and lets go of the camera and grabs her and pulls her. Now, I'm not sure if you understand the tensile strength of a giraffe's tongue, but I can tell you it is equally as great to a 180-pound man pulling his girlfriend. So she ends up with this bloody scalp. Ouch. So it wasn't the great ape. It wasn't the snow leopard. It wasn't the lion. I wasn't attacked by some uh, sedated koala. And it wasn't the snakes getting the guy. It was Jeffrey from Toys R Us who did the damage. (laughs) of the day and i was so blown away i was like this day happened i can't believe this happened this was real life i left that zoo thinking oh you know maybe or i went to the zoo thinking, oh yeah maybe i'll have an enjoyable experience i have this crazy story that is just one thing on top of the next on top of the next on top of the next and probably will never be replicated ever in my life 
You know, the, there's a jujitsu uh, takeaway from that story, which is you can't always tell who the badass is going to be. No, not <laughs> no. necessarily the snake. You know, the giraffe is going to mess you up. And I don't know about the rest of y'all, but like that story makes me want to buy a ticket to Australia, some cargo shorts, and a, and a fanny pack, and just see if I can see if I can get come home with a koala, a really stoned koala. Hey, let me shout out to Todd Levin. Your fanny pack is halfway there, man. You, you're 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 ready for Australia, brother. Um, Crikey! And I, I'll say this: I have. Um, I have this guy, Nathan Mitchell, who's from Melbourne, who's a student in my school, and we'll talk all the time about crazy Australian stories, and I tell him this, and he's like, yeah, you know, that sounds about par for the course. It doesn't surprise these people. Standard. I, just standard. I, we just call that a Saturday yeah. here in Australia. And, and, you know, talking about, you know, the jiu-jitsu part of the story, which is you, you, you can't judge a book by its cover. It's the tall, gangly, you know, uh, mascot for Toys R Us that did the damage. It's not the big cat predator or the or the multiple hundred pound uh, ape it was or the venomous snakes that they're known for it was the giraffe well up in my area where i'm training at the pedro sour headquarters we have a huge it community because there are all these data centers and stuff and we have these guys that are just the most unassuming people in the world you'll never hear this name ben douglas ben douglas is considered mini pedro sour he just is 160 pounds of pure jujitsu. And when I say pure jujitsu, I mean pure. He does everything by the books as if it were Master Sour just reincarnated into this gringo. Wow. And he'll never compete. He's a, I, I think he's going to be a black belt in judo, or I, I'm not too familiar with the judo ranks. I know he's like second rank brown belt in judo, never competed in judo, even though he trained under Morris Allen, you know, great, great judica. Never competed in jiu-jitsu at any belt level and never has an intent to, any intent to, but incredible, just tools, anybody who comes his way. And he's the most unassuming dude. He comes in with his, you know, his little bag and his, and his computer and he sits there on the side and he's like, oh guys, leave me alone. (laughs) And he's just incredible. Sounds like I'd love the guy. Dave Porter is a black belt under the legendary Pedro Sauer. He has a DVD coming out, Bringing Back the Bravo, and uh, we will be able to let you know when that comes out. We'll post it all on our various social media networks. Uh, Dave, it's been a real pleasure having you in studio today. Thanks, Jeff. It's always a blast. Thank you. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu geese or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one. 24 Lotta Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotta Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. So that's the show for today. I want to thank David Porter for coming down to the Triangle, showing us his Darce chokes, training with us at Elevate MMA, and for taking the time to tell us some jiu-jitsu stories. If you want to support Dave's work, you can check out uh, the DVD, Bringing Back the Bravo, when it drops on Black Friday. We will post a link in the show comments and on our Facebook page. Uh, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Dirty White Belt and DWBBJJ, respectively. You can also use the hashtag DWBBJJ. We will be back next week. Thanks for listening.